The following list of bassist nicknames is dedicated to Sean Hardbargain Hartman. Pops, Geezer, Family Man, Hookie, The Hook, The Munch, The Judge, The Buddha, The Phantom, The Ox, The Mole, The Fish, Big Moose, Thundercat, Pony, Duck, Yorkie, Bootsy, Boogie, Lucky, Lefty, Fonzie, Fieldy, Fuzzy, Fuzz, Cone, T-Bone, Peanut, Graves, Evil, Blasco, Jocko, Rocco, Macca, Chaz, Thunderthumbs, Big Hands, Slam, Mars, and Popcorn. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and let me just take a quick moment to turn my chair around, sit out real cool. I want to talk to you guys about the original Funketeer, Jesus Christ. Did you turn your hat backwards, too? Oh, you know it. That was implied. (laughs) I love that image. Well, I... I'm co-host Jeremy Thunderthumbs Ruggles, the one and only. <laughs> There's been no one else. The one and only person that's ever gone by Thunderthumbs. Wait, is there another Thunderthumbs already? If you listen to our Brothers Johnson episode, you would know there is. How am I supposed to pick a good basis nickname when all the good ones are taken? I mean, there's. You know, I gotta. I'm just gonna say real quick though. It's pretty impressive. Stepped all over your shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say it's really impressive that there's someone else out there who took the name Thunder Thumbs and made it so synonymous with himself that there's like no porn results when you search those words. You would think that those would be very dangerous words to search on the internet, but it's just Lewis Johnson. Yeah. I had a whole list of bassist nicknames that I'm not even going to read now. You already took my thunder, Sean. (laughs) Took the thunder right out of your thumbs. (laughs) That's true. I am co-host Peter Cook, and I am excited to announce that I'm opening a new club that plays only Christian disco. It's called The Crisco. Ooh. (laughs) Zing. It's got to work. And with us today, as our guest, is a DJ who hosts the Divine Chord Gospel Show, a monthly online broadcast dedicated to gospel, soul, funk, and spirituals from the 1960s through the 1980s on dublab.com. Welcome, Greg Belson. Uh, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. In fact, if I can just... Um... Just take a moment to say, uh, my real name is Greg Brutal Baseline Belson. <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Yeah, there we go. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm quite happy here with the, you know, just picking away. You know, I've got a nice five string on the go at the moment. <laughs> just ripping out those brutal bass lines. <laughs> yeah, you know, one that. at a time. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on board on this uh, on this show. And I'm, uh, Looking forward to sharing this this cracking little discovery that we have today. Yeah, you want to tell the people what record we're going to have on the turntable today? Absolutely. It's uh, 
it's a, it, the, the only release that they, they came out with as far as LPs are concerned, and it's a band called Passage, which was released on Herb Alpert's A&M Records label in 1981. And it features and produced by the legendary Lewis Johnson, a.k.a. Thunder Thumbs, the bassist for the Brothers Johnson. Yes, the Brothers Johnson, who we covered early on in this podcast in just our 16th episode, excited to go back and explore a different part of uh, this legendary musician's career. So what song are we going to kick things off with? Well, the first song that I have lined up for you is, um, out of the main four tracks which I've picked today, the first one is Have You Heard the Word? This is side one, track one. And it's not Surfing Bird. definitely never heard this record before and when sean was like yeah it's a christian funk record my brain couldn't even like put together all of that it was like no funk is for like either sexy time music or like (laughs) political music but like it's it's that it's christian funk (laughs) no denying it Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it, it's quite late in the scheme of things. Um, funk started to weave its way into gospel in uh, the late 60s with the 60s, with the James Brown style, what you would call funk at that point. And lots of gospel records started to actually 
borrow riffs from popular songs that were in the soul charts at the time. So with this record being released in 1981, the gospel funk sound had kind of morphed quite a bit into mainstream production and solid production. And I think that's where Lewis Johnson uh, takes center stage with this recording because it's brought everything bang up to date and it just sounds immaculate and uh, uh, more so than any kind of really uh, gospel funk records that were being made at the time, I think. You could look at labels like Savoy and Birthright, and these are all other, other labels that were kind of masking the sound of, uh, the, of this modern soul era. But I think Lewis Johnson encapsulates it here in one recording. Yeah, and you can really tell by listening to this that Lewis Johnson, who also you know produced this whole record, has spent the last six years of his life just living in the studio with Quincy Jones, basically, and recording legendary record one after another. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, his, uh, his career, uh, from mainstream artists to soul artists to jazz, uh, gospel and crossover gospel artists, it really runs the gamut of uh, how versatile his playing is. And uh, I, I, I think this album is so underrated. And I like the way that he kind of doesn't, edge on the fact that this is Lewis Johnson from the Brothers Johnson. He keeps himself in the back, in the background somewhat uh, and uh, just lets the whole project breathe rather than spotlighting himself. Until he rips that sick bass solo, which yeah. he did a couple times on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. When you know it's Lewis Johnson, you listen to it, it's like, oh, that makes sense. But if you were to just listen to this record blind, it's not like you would be like, oh, well, this is obviously a, a Lewis Johnson album. Like, there's When I first picked this record up, I had I, I made the cardinal mistake of not reading the liner notes on the back. And it took me a minute to actually go, this is some seriously good playing, uh, followed by this is some superior production. And, and when, it wasn't until I actually read the quite sparse liner notes on the back, but there it was right at the top, produced by Lewis Johnson. Penny dropped, and there we go. Yeah, and one thing I was thinking about that, it can be easy to kind of lose context in this day and age, you know, removed from the original. But there was a time, especially in funk music, when the bass player was much more common to be a big star. You know, you think about guys like Larry Graham, Bootsy Collins, Verdine White. And back in the day, Lewis Johnson was one of the most famous bass players, you know, especially for his slap bass technique. He was seen as the guy that kind of took the torch from Larry Graham in a way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and there, there were also artists like Stanley Clark that were coming to the to, to the forefront. Uh, so yes, absolutely. The, particularly Larry Graham and of course Bootsy before that and during that era as well, without a doubt. There's there's a reason why they call him Thunder Thumbs, and uh, I think it's pretty clear when you hear this recording. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was reading too that we didn't mention in the original brothers johnson episode leo fender himself designed a bass specifically for lewis johnson the music man stingray yeah that's incredible yeah was basically the lewis johnson uh signature bass designed to really accentuate his slap bass playing style yeah i, I don't know exactly what the, the design entailed uh, what, what it consisted of specifically to enhance that 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 playing but 
you know, it, what, did they use a different fretboard? What did, you know, what is it that they use different pickups or whatever? That would I, be- I didn't write down all the the technicalities of it because I didn't want to bore people too much. But yeah, <laughs> a difference difference in pickups and more of a tonal control, especially on the treble and high end, so that he could really accentuate those different slap sounds and the percussive element to his playing. Because I, I think whilst uh, you could liken, say, John Entwistle from the Who, who developed a style of playing. Yeah, without a doubt, the, the, the purveyor of slap bass swiftly after Larry Graham is, mm-hmm. Lewis, is Lewis Johnson. Yeah, and for anyone not familiar, Larry Graham was the original bassist in Sly and the Family Stone and then Graham Central Station after that. Yeah. And the basically the original godfather of slap bass technique. Yeah, exactly. Can you guys guess what semi-recent album featured on this podcast? I, I got some... Vibes off of this one that kind of remind me of a previously featured album when initially hmm. listening to this. It it has to do with the religious element of, of the record. Uh, oh, so you're thinking about Rasa? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Rasa, everything you see is me. But I will say with the Rasa record, since it was Hare Krishna, I I, I guess it didn't, it didn't phase me as much as it did with with this one. I, I quickly am seeing past that, and I'm just hearing it for a great record. But I yeah. originally, it, it was a little hard for me to hear past that. Yeah, I believe I described it as aggressively Christian at one point. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's a new subgenre I'd like to see in record stores. Yeah. <laughs> aggressively, <laughs> agro-Christian. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Isn't that like jars of clay? Weren't they agro Christian? <laughs> yeah, they're the, the poster kids for that. <laughs> jars of clay. <laughs> it's a great name for a band. <laughs> the world of contemporary Christian music. Yeah. <laughs> I did notice that they cover an Amy Grant song on this record, Faith Walking People, which I, I got I just want to reveal this now while I have the opportunity. I that allowed me to make a connection between this album and our Jesse Winchester episode. Oh my. <laughs> because Faith Walking People, written by Amy Grant, and it appears on this record, we're not going to feature it, but that appeared on her 1979 album, My Father's Eyes, which also contained her version of Jesse Winchester's Lay Down the Burden of Your Heart, which was on the Let the Rough Side Drag album that we featured on the podcast previously. Wow. <laughs> interesting and that would have been only a few years into amy grant's career i think her first record was like 77 something like that yeah yeah this was one of her very early records and when i saw that they featured a, a song of hers i was like it might have been on <laughs> it might have been on the same one the jesse winchester song was on so mm-hmm. that was the extent of my research for this episode <laughs> it's actually quite interesting that they they did actually uh, have a crack at a a reggae tune on this this uh, passage album because uh, it seemed like there was a brief, very brief period where bands were kind of trying to. I assume they were trying to pull in from different audiences and they would tap into different styles onto one album. I think specifically there was a, a band called Paradise that were recorded out of the UK and that um, they recorded an album that included very similar material to this, but all the way through. So you had a real couple of great modern soul disco dance tunes but also a reggae cut uh something a little bit more down tempo which is a little bit more 
uh, middle of the road and, uh, and another band as well was uh, again an english band called kanos the the, the the fantastically named kanos that did versions of stevie wonder tunes but also linked linked in reggae records so i wonder what the, the decision making process was of the set that made up this album and it probably was something to do with maybe herb alpert uh, or one of their representatives a&m said let's do an all-encompassing style to reach as many people as we possibly can thankfully from my point of view four of the tracks are exactly in my wheelhouse so so that's all good yeah i i think no one would argue that this is a perfect record in any way there's there's a couple sleepers on here but uh you know the the good tracks are really really good on here. Yeah, yeah, and and to get four incredible tracks within the wheelhouse that we're talking today is uh, kind of rare when it comes to a gospel album. Really, uh, you you would expect quite a lot of variety within the gospel uh, genre, uh, as in um, choir based or or, or, or straight ahead gospel. But to actually have four very similar sounding produced. Uh, tempo tracks is is quite a rare thing yeah definitely mm-hmm. well let's go ahead and hear another song real quick and come back and talk a little bio about lewis johnson what's the next one that we're gonna hear next up we've got a uh, the track which is arguably the the best track for the dance floor it's uh it's called power looking at side two track two Definitely a guaranteed floor filler right there. Fits in with the boogie funk set. Still got that straight up gospel energy to it. The big drums, the obviously killer bass line. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's got it all. Can confirm. It was just Jeremy 
and I hear at Jeremy's house, and as soon as that track came on, like 30 people entered the room, and <laughs> the lights got dark, and the disco ball went on, and yeah, it, and then as soon as you shut the track off, they were gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah they were all gone on on a frenzy of roller skates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The song cannot be denied. Uh, yeah, yeah. I like the fact that um, that Lewis Johnson features the, the bass synthesizer there rather than uh, a slap bass technique. Uh, yeah, it shows that he's he's versatile with keys as well as strings. Yeah. I did find a lot of interviews of him complaining endlessly about electronic basses and how it was taking the soul out of music, but... You know, even he could experiment with technology here and there. Yeah, well, when you've got the soul in your fingertips, then you can make uh, you can make magic with those things. Yeah, and he was all about dynamic in his playing too. It wasn't just how do I do this as flashy as possible. There was a lot of thought into making it interesting and having sections quieter and sections louder and some busier and some simple. So, yeah. and if you look, if you look at specifically the, the the jazz artists that he worked with, that completely answers that remit that you just said. Uh, just taking into account uh, people like George Duke, Herbie Hancock, Harvey Mason, Dave Grusin, and the Crusaders. That's exactly the sort of demographic that they were looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, real quick, let's go through a little bio on Lewis Johnson. He lived from April 13th, 1955 to May 21st, 2015. He was just over 60 when he passed. Far too young. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Tragic. Yeah, definitely. But interesting that uh, for me, born in Los Angeles, and, and when you listen to his music, it has a very definite Los Angeles, California sunshine feel to it. And there's definitely a lot of bass lines he played that were sampled in hip hop, especially West Coast style hip hop throughout the years. Absolutely. It's, it's his his CV is ridiculous. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. of the most impressive, very hardworking guy. So the 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 reign of the brothers Johnson, Lewis and George Johnson. They started in a band called the Johnson 3 Plus 1. Their first big break was winning a battle of the bands and getting a record produced by the great Bobby Womack. And then the big break came in 1971 when both the brothers joined Billy Preston's band. They can be heard on a couple of different records, but both of them can be heard on Music Is My Life, which of course had the big hit Will It Go Round in Circles on it. So that would have been the first time that most people heard the Brothers Johnson in recorded format. Mm -hmm. Billy Preston, the Beatle? Yes, the <laughs> yes. fifth Beatle. <laughs> and then things really kicked into high gear in about 1974-75. They get introduced to Quincy Jones. One story I read was that they were trying to audition for Stevie Wonder's band, and Quincy just kind of came in and scooped them right out of the audition. <laughs> like, you guys are mine now. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yep, it seems like Quincy's style from yep, yep, everything yep. that can be read about him. Power move. Uh, so they worked on his Mellow Madness album in 75. Not only that, but Lewis credits Quincy for being a huge mentor to him, especially in the business side of being in the music business. Most notably, he taught him how to get songwriting credits for his bass contributions. Because of this, even though he passed far too young, he was able to retire pretty comfortably from everything I could see. He was kind of slowing down in the music industry by the age of like 35, 40 and had earned more than enough money and actually done a really good job of saving it. So 
a lot of that is to the credit and mentorship of Quincy Jones. Yeah, Quincy knew how to play the business game. Yes, yes. <laughs> he knew how to play many different games, musical and business. And then, of course, Quincy produced most of the Brothers Johnson albums and really helped launch their careers in a lot of ways. So, like I said, Lewis was a really dedicated hard worker. His whole goal in these early days of fame was to just take as many jobs as he could and save up as much money as possible. Even when the Brothers Johnson were at their commercial peak, he was still doing session work for other people in between touring and recording his own albums. He has stated in interviews that he just saw too many bands before them fall apart after just a few years in the spotlight, and he wanted to be ready if and when that happened, which, you know... You wish a lot more people had gone in with an, an attitude like that. You hear too many tragic stories of gifted musicians who just, you know, lived in poverty at the end. On the other hand, his brother George has stated that he felt Lewis's studio work was excessive and contributed to the downfall of the brothers Johnson by oversaturating the market with their sound. Hmm. I mean, you know, I, I can see that. I mean, he has just such a distinctive way of playing and massively influential. So many people learned slap bass specifically because of Thunder Thumbs. And when you look at, you can turn on the radio at any time, and chances are you will hear within the course of a day at least one song that he's played on. That's very and true. That's, <laughs> and, and that's actually true. That's a true statement, you know? And that's pretty incredible when you think about it. Here's a short list of records that you can hear the great Lewis Johnson playing bass on. Grover Washington Jr.'s Feel So Good, Herbie Hancock's Manchild, Sergio Mendez and Brazil 77's Home Cooking, Harvey Mason's Funk in a Mason Jar, Pointer Sisters Having a Party, Rufus and Shaka Khan Master Jam, Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. He got specific songwriting credit for the song Get on the Floor, which was written off of a bass line that he came up with. And he's also on George Benson's Give Me the Night, Quincy Jones' The Dude, which came out the same year as this Passage record, and of course, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Yep, you can also add to that some of the mainstream artists that he uh, provided work for, which is you know, Paul McCartney, Phil Collins, Stevie Nicks, um, later on Bjork, Kenny Loggins. It's just almost like a who's who of what was going on at any time. Mm-hmm. So it uh, it's and and in between all of that, he releases this album, which clearly I think must have been uh, something that he felt very very passionate about. Maybe he got a, a lease of life, a freedom from it, and consequently, it's why you heard such thorough arrangements like the tracks that we're hearing today. Yeah, you know, you wonder was this like a quick like side project, I'm going to do this thing that is, you know, maybe calls back to a certain time in my life or something, or was this the passion project that he always wanted to do? And he just finally hit a point in his career where he was able to, you know, pursue these passion projects. A pa passage project. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that the, the third noted player on the album is a, a Brothers Johnson member a band from the a member from the band the percussionist richard heath uh, so clearly he's he's holding on to something there but having a departure away from it and i think this was something that he'd planned for a while and when you listen to the arrangements 
the strings and just every the layers. This is not just something that came out. Let's let's go into the studio. Let's do something. I think this was something which was formulated over. I don't know how long, but it was definitely a, a passion project. I think. Yeah, not phoned in in any way for sure. Yeah, yeah. And as a side note for his recording credits, he gets the the Yacht Rock bonus points of having played on Aretha Franklin's cover of What a Fool Believes and also Michael McDonald's massive solo hit, I Keep Forgetting When You're Near. Oh, the Nate Dogg and Warren G's Regulate, the, 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 the basis for that. Exactly. One of the many examples of a Lewis Johnson bass line being sampled frequently in hip-hop. Far out. Well, let's go ahead and listen to another track then. What's what's next in the lineup? Uh, next up, we've got the, the gloriously named The Great Flood. Not the Jars of Clay song, Flood. <laughs> no, this is, this is even greater. This is The Great Flood. <laughs> Not to True. be confused. We're looking at side one, track five. I'm just now noticing what a incredible, fantastic string arrangement is on that song. Do we have any idea who arranged the strings for this record? Well, what it sounds like to me is it's difficult to say because it's no, never been written about, to my knowledge. But I think there is a very large nod here from Quincy Jones. Now, I, I think he may well have come in 
to do some guest production, maybe some guest string arrangements or whatever, and didn't want any credit for it. Now, that uh, that could well be because he was signed up to another label that didn't want Quincy going to another label or, or having his work put out elsewhere. Yeah, there's various reasons why artists appear um, uh, under shroud, if you like, um, from other record labels. So uh, to me, that sounds very Quincy Jones. And I love the fact that the baseline playing is, is very staccato, uh, showing a, a completely different side to that, to the slap bass that Lewis Johnson is really known for. So I, I think this, this here is a, um, an example of our Lord and Master, Mr. Jones, coming in and, and weaving his magic <laughs> wand. Definitely seems very likely. As we said, Lewis was a close collaborator, you know, working on Quincy's The Dude around the same exact time. They might have even been in, you know, the same studio at the same point. Just you know, easy to... Could well have been part of the same session and they just, well, just said, there you go. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, that's that's funny. You know, they're uh, in these sessions. They're covering Chaz Jankel and Amy Grant. (laughs) (laughs) Both sides, both kinds of music. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time in research for this episode, trying to get an idea of what kind of a person Lewis Johnson might have been when he was around and performing and making this music in the early '80s. And I found a little bit surprisingly there was a lot of periods where him and george didn't get along in fact towards the end of his life lewis had stated that him and george were no longer on speaking terms the brothers johnson broke up twice so it kind of all fits together but i had read that while the band was around they would have to tour in separate buses and it was kind of an infamous thing where lewis's bus would be him basically holding Bible studies and just spending time (laughs) reading the Bible and trying to lead a clean life. Whereas George's bus, he'd be, you know, partying with people (laughs) they're on tour with like Shaka Khan and P-Funk and it was like (laughs) just completely different scenes. And, you know, if, if you're living (laughs) your lives with completely different goals, like not even sharing the same reality anymore, it would make sense that uh, the relationship would get strained. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, two peas in a pod, they were not, I think. Yeah, but musically, they clicked so hard. (laughs) But, I mean, there's plenty of other examples of, you know, famous musical duos. You know, Sam and Dave hated each other. Like, sometimes it works on the stage and just nowhere else. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Oasis handle their their reunion. (laughs) (laughs) True. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also found that... Music in general was a very serious thing for Lewis Johnson. It was, you know, he he talked about his goal was never to be famous or achieve clout. He simply wanted to do the best possible job that he could in every situation. You know, Brothers Johnson, Passage, studio work, he was just there to be serious and do the best thing that he possibly could. Always challenging himself and trying to improve. I, I think um, when you actually have an instrument made for you, specifically to your design, uh, then you know that you're not going to sec- settle for second best, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and just that right there for me is is intent that he is serious about his career. Yeah, and he talked about how when he started, when he would play the bass, he didn't think of himself as playing the instrument. He thought of himself as becoming the instrument. Mm-hmm. 
So again, it's just like, and you can tell watching him play, he just loses himself in the music. Yeah, and uh, he developed a style. I think uh, I think they referred to it as like a slap chop. And I, I'm not, I, I'm no technician, but it, it involved the the um, uh, certainly on the fret, it involved fingers and thumbs, you know, all over the fret, which helped. I, I, I'm no technician, but when when you develop a style, uh, that takes time, effort, and dedication, you know. And uh, I think that's that's exemplary for what he was doing in the music industry. Yeah. And another interesting thing is that after kind of retiring from session work in about 1989, one of his biggest focus, aside from just kind of traveling and living life, was he got really into the art of teaching. He recorded several different bass instructional videos that are still well regarded. He founded several music schools, including the Lewis Johnson Black Dragon Institute, which hmm. he described as being part music and part martial arts. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy got really stoked on that. I can only imagine being so fortunate as to uh, have been able to attend something like that. I would love to meet someone who went to that school. Yes. Is yes. it still open? Can I go? I, I doubt it. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware of that, and um, I want. I want that. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's Same. that's insane that's fantastic uh, apparently lewis was a longtime martial arts enthusiast and he stated that his martial arts training was what helped allow him to be such a dedicated worker in session work and what allowed him to kind of stay calm and focused in these sometimes crazy studio sessions especially working with quincy jones all the time and arguably who knows what his brother george was was saying at the same time by the sounds of it yeah, yeah, leading very different lives, it would seem. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not one for speculation, but I've seen the movie Spinal Tap, and I see how things run. <laughs> yeah, potentially how it works. Potentially, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So one of the other things I was digging up that was kind of interesting is there definitely seemed to be a rift between George and Lewis's wife Valerie. I couldn't find any info on how long Lewis and Valerie were married, but my impression is that it was maybe just a few years right around this point when the Brothers Johnson reformed in 1984 to record our previously featured album, Out of Control. George had apparently made some disparaging comments to the press, unfavorably comparing Valerie Johnson and Yoko Ono, saying that in mm. his view, they were both responsible for breaking up successful bands. Right, and here she is appearing um, in the lineup here in Passage. Um, yes, yeah, it's, she's the female vocalist on this. Yeah, yeah, it's it's something that I, it's pure speculation. I think at this point, and only what you read in uh, in the uh, the articles that are out there to read about it, I is I I couldn't possibly comment as to exactly what went on there, but you could. Well, I could comment, I guess. <laughs> I could I, I could say it does seem like the, the relationship, the split between the two didn't end well. It wasn't amicable. Um, but what I don't know is the reasons what led to that exactly. But again, you, you can probably speculate as to, or as long as you keep it to yourself, <laughs> you can speculate, yeah. you can speculate what happened there. You know, the the closest I'll get to speculating here is that I was looking up Valerie's credits on Discogs and she has quite a few songwriting credits. I was like, oh, maybe she was a songwriter aside from this. And then you 
see that some of her first credits were getting vocal and songwriting credits on most of the tracks of the Brothers Johnson's fourth album, Light Up the Night, in 1980, which includes a co-writing credit on one of their best-selling, if not their best-selling single at the time, Stomp. Mm. And she doesn't really do a lot outside of this. So who knows what happened there, but it, it seems weird that she's getting songwriting credits in this band at the peak of their popularity and then does the side project and more or less disappears. She does some vocals on... Um, the Stanley Clark record that Lewis Johnson was on and just like one or two other random things, but there's couldn't find really any information on her outside of this context or, or even how long they were married. That's, that's very interesting. When you consider, we, we know that Lewis Johnson is a shrewd businessman. And if you're, if you know how to fill in MCPS and PRS forms, then there's every possibility that he may well have edged in his wife as a, as a beneficiary. Yeah. And I, Which, I, I mean, you can only imagine how that would uh, not help the relationship. I would have sat with George, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As an aside, I just want to thank Peter Jackson for finally dispelling the notion that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles. You know, he just had to release a seven-hour-long documentary. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, to do it. doing the Lord's yeah, work. Yeah, that was edited down from about. What, what, 24 hours or whatever it was? I don't know. <laughs> it was a lot of footage. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a piece of work that was. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Sean. Yes. I think it's time for Jeremy to ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sean. <laughs> well, Jeremy. I've been told that it's time for me to ask you a question. I'm waiting. Let's say, let's say I got a call from on high and I just... I need more of that Christian funk sound. Where do I look? Well, I've already listened to Passage. I need something else. Well, hopefully Greg can give you a couple of that Christian funk recommendations, but I picked three specifically not Christian funk records that I think have a very similar sound to this that all came out in the same year, 1981. So I, I hope that'll do for you, but oh, darn, I was hoping you had some Christian disco because I need some for my new club, the Crisco. <laughs> That's true. You gotta fill those playlists. <laughs> All right, first up for my recommendations, Dynasty, the Second Adventure from 1981. Leon Silvers is a guy that collaborated with the brothers Johnson at different points. He produced and wrote a couple of the songs on their album Out of Control that we featured early on in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, the that was a Lauren Ram guest appearance on that episode, Dynasty, mm -hmm. the Second Adventure. Great record. Great band. Next up, a Quincy Jones joint, Patty Austin, Every Home Should Have One from 1981, giving you that really smooth, very jazz-influenced R&B sound from this time period that this Passage record does a great job with as well. And last up, some... Sophistifunk by the great Change, recommending their album Miracles from 1981. Which, that's not the album we covered, is it? It's not. We covered a different record, but pretty much every also, Change record is worth grabbing. Yep, yep. Lauren Ram brought some change to us as well. <laughs> Coincidence. And uh, Greg, did you have any recommendations of early 80s gospel funk that could be found relatively cheap? Possibly. Well, well, the easiest way to access that stuff is uh, I did two compilations 
for the cultures of soul label uh, and both of them are featuring divine disco so slot right into the the, the era that we're talking about divine disco volume one and volume two and uh, it's a snapshot of uh, some of the, the first volume is more accessible music which was what we would call on in the gospel fraternity as more major labels such as the Savoy label and then the the second volume we dug a little bit deeper and just accessed 45s uh, so uh, very small release runs and stuff like that but both volumes uh, can be bought pretty cheaply and uh, they, they give you a, a great insight as to what the music is all about. As far as artists are concerned, you could look at Shirley Finney and uh, uh, Linda Williams. There's there's a myriad of people for you that you could look that you could look at, and it's a genre which is starting to pick up weight in certain collectors' fields. So, I'm, unfortunately, uh, a lot of it is starting to increase in value, but there is still some goods to be found if you if you were to look around. And honestly, I would suggest going. With, with regards to Passage, I would suggest getting onto YouTube and just searching their tracks, uh, and you get some great recommendations that come out of it. That's the cheapest way to really to really look at uh, more music along this line, really. Um, Ooh, a hack. Yeah, yeah, it's a hack, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, and as I say, the Savoy record label is, is uh, one of the biggest record labels that actually release gospel music, and their output from the 70s to the, the 80s really did concentrate on bringing the gospel sound forward in 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 dance music and disco music yeah and as we've stated before it's definitely one of those genres where even though a lot of the records are becoming more valuable there's still plenty of sellers and stores that have the gospel as a more neglected section of the store you can still come onto this stuff pretty cheap if you dig a little bit yeah, absolutely. There's still a lot of people, and if you if you go to record fairs, they don't really know what to do with it. In 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 some areas, it's it's kind of bizarre in a way that uh, it's a genre which is very misunderstood, I think, and that it and that a lot of people just think it's all about praising the Lord or praising one thing or praising this, that, and the other, instead of looking at the actual value of the music and and what it has to contribute. So it kind of gets some sometimes a bit rubbed off the shoulder a little bit as in something that they don't really understand so consequently they don't know where to file it in a system yeah or where to put it so i I, the best thing to do is if you like the the tracks that you've heard today is get into your local record store and get your fingers dusty quite frankly look ask if they have a gospel section and, and and listen to stuff that you like the look of because it's there to be had well greg we established that People can hear the Divine Chord Gospel Show on dublab.com. Do you want to say any more about that program or anything else you have going on? Sure. We've been running that show now uh, monthly. It's the fourth Saturday of every month, uh, and it broadcasts at 10 a.m. USPST. Uh, We've been going for 11 years strong, and every track that we play is a a different track. We, We try not to play too many repeats on the show we like to keep moving things forward because there's so much to discover uh so we've been doing that for 11 years and uh we keep moving on everything is moving on strong i also do another show uh, called uh, the divine discotheque which runs every sunday on soho radio and that broadcasts at uh, 8 a.m uk gmt i'm also going to be going off on tour 
on the 1st of May, um, going on a DJ tour around the UK, taking in a, a whole slew of venues. And you can find out the detail there on my socials, which will be DJ Greg Belson on Instagram and on Facebook, uh, the same page. You can also check out everything that I've done on Mixcloud. There's a, around 600 mixes on there at the moment. If you just check out Greg Belson. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> and everything is played from original vinyl because that's what I like to do. <laughs> I like to keep it that way and um, keep. So do we. And, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's it, really. Um, I, I Music is my passion. Music is what I do 24-7. And it was great to, to share this this album as just a little highlight of music, which is kind of under the radar still. But yeah, you could probably go to a record store today and this record will be sat in the racks. Yeah, it's it's still out there on the cheap. Yeah. Until it gets the, I buy that bump, then it's going to be and then too expensive yeah. for everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. I think there's, Get it now. <laughs> I think there's something like right now, that, um, there's about 75 or 80 copies on Discogs or something like that. And uh, as I say, I can go down to my local store and I think there's about three copies in the racks right now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. There's good stuff out there. It's not all expensive yet. Just exactly. Get your fingers dirty, like Greg said. Exactly. Well, what are we going out on? What song did we select to leave on today? Well, it's actually my favorite track from the album. It's a little bit slower in tempo, but I think it ha- it completely demonstrates the art of the bass line, the beautiful strings, uh, the harmonies, the vocal. I, it's it's the track that makes makes my, the, the, the hairs on the back of my arm stand up. And uh, it's called I See the Light. Oh, yeah, this is a good one. To be up there on the album for me. All right. All right. We're looking at side one, track four. Greg, thank you so much for coming on and hyping everybody to this wonderful record. Getting to talk about the great Lewis Johnson again. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a had a great time with you guys. Thank you. I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm co-host Peter Cook. I'm co-host Sean. And I've been the guest, Greg Belson. Thanks for listening. from 